very warmly welcome to UCL, to UCL uh, staff, students, and colleagues, um, and to our external guests. My job is very simple tonight. I'm going to tell you how tonight works. I'm then going to introduce a few of our colleagues who will give Alan a proper introduction. You will then hear from uh, our guest of honor, and we will have an appreciation um, at the end of Alan's lecture. If you are happy to join us for drinks, we will be over in the Haldane room, and you can follow a few of our colleagues over there. So um, I'm going to introduce in a moment, or let me introduce now, uh, my colleague, Professor Meg Russell, who is a professor of British and Comparative Politics and the director of UCL's Constitution Unit. She's going to be giving Alan's formal introduction. And tonight, the appreciation is by Professor Anand Menand, who is the director of UK in a Changing Europe. Um, let me just say that normally during inaugural lectures, there isn't an opportunity for Q&A. This is usually the time the professor just gets to profess and then leave the stage. But as you know, Alan is an expert in democracy and representation. And one of the themes in his talk tonight is what you can do, what is your part? And so he's giving you the opportunity to ask a few questions um, at the end of the lecture. If there are more questions, or you just want to congratulate Alan, please do join us for a drink. Without further ado, Professor Meg Russell. Hello and um, welcome from me. I hope you can hear me without too much echo. Um, I couldn't be more delighted than to be here tonight to introduce to you Professor Alan Rennick. It was in this selfsame room eight years ago at my own inaugural lecture that I was equally delighted to announce that Alan would be joining UCL's Department of Political Science and the Constitution Unit as its Deputy Director. He'd first properly crossed our radar four years earlier in 2011 during the referendum campaign over, join, over changing the electoral system. We hosted a major debate in the Bloomsbury Theatre with representatives of the yes and no campaigns balanced by an expert panel who'd comment on their claims. Alan was one of that panel and his on-the-spot critique of both sides was wonderfully sharp. Thus starts a fascinating journey in Alan's scholarship which has encompassed ever-increasing parts of our Constitution. Having started primarily as an electoral systems expert, the 2011 experience clearly tickled Alan's interest in referendums, how to hold them well, and how easy it is to hold them badly, and the importance of good quality campaigns and public information. But he didn't stop at referendums. The next UK-wide one was, of course, held on Brexit, so Alan was soon to become a Brexit specialist as well. Shortly before that referendum, he made two pretty remarkable contributions. First, in our earliest formal collaboration with Anand's UK and a Changing Europe, Alan devised a set of public seminars, exploring what the constitutional consequences would be of a vote for leave. These were approached seriously with carefully prepared briefing papers, but many, assuming the outcome, saw them as just a bit of fun and exercising counterfactuals. Topics like the Northern Ireland border had hardly featured in the referendum campaign. But I remember waking blearily in the early hours of the 24th of June 2016 to suddenly hear commentators quoting from those briefings. In a similar vein, Alan wrote a blog post, The 16 Things You Need to Know About What Will Happen If We Vote to Leave the EU. This soon became our most read ever blog post, outstripping tenfold the nearest competitors. Clearly this was an impressive achievement on Alan's part, but of course also illustrated the dire lack of reliable official information in that referendum and the public thirst for it. After the Brexit referendum, Alan led on two further related unit projects. First, the Independent Commission on Referendums brought together 12 senior figures, at least one of whom I see is here tonight, who held differing political opinions to make proposals on how we could do referendums better. Second, the Citizens' Assembly on Brexit brought together a representative group of ordinary citizens to deliberate on how to implement the result. 
It's, of course, a shame, again, that the government didn't think to run such an exercise itself. Alan's interest in referendums later took him to the question of Northern Ireland's future, with his leadership of the Working Group on Unification Referendums on the island of Ireland. So although he'd probably deny it, Alan's beginning as an electoral systems expert has led him to become a referendums expert, then a Brexit expert, and more recently, a Northern Ireland expert too. That's quite an achievement, even before getting into his expertise in citizens' assemblies, the quality of debate, and public attitudes to democracy, which we're going to hear more about tonight. People present will be aware of some of Alan's other skills. An accomplished flautist. Um, did I say that right? <laughs> he plays the flute. Uh, <laughs> uh, runner, uh, an excellent baker of scones, um, and an absolute stickler for English grammar. Indeed, having conquered Hungarian, a famously difficult language, during his master's degree studies in Budapest, a native speaker once told me that she feared his corrections in Hungarian grammar as well. <laughs> All around, Alan's a person of high standards and enormous ability. He's also a lovely colleague and person. A person fundamentally driven by a desire to make politics better. Like all of us at the Constitution Unit, he sees politics as much more than just a fascinating subject worthy of academic study. It's a crucial process for taking societal decisions that requires support, including from its citizens. His work's often well ahead of the curve, finding workable answers in our democracy before policymakers are even properly articulating the questions. But he also engages closely with those policymakers in both framing the questions and communicating the, their answers. That's hard, but Alan does it. And as well as helping drive the unit's impact work, Alan leads for the department on impact, including being the charismatic host and organizer of, our, of the department's Uncovering Politics podcast. And he's also a very popular teacher. So thank you, Alan, for everything you've already done for the Constitution Unit, for the department, for your students, and for the policy world. While you can maybe slow down a bit now, um, you have made it. You're a UCL professor. Uh, we do look forward to hearing much, much more from you, starting with this lecture tonight. So after Meg's very kind introduction there, I think I should engage in a little bit of expectations management. I, I don't actually know the answer to this question. <laughs> Indeed, even if I did know the answer, I wouldn't be able to explain it in the time that's available to me this evening, because democracy is complex. There is no simple fix. Indeed, one of the problems in our democratic system is that too often we are offered overly simplistic solutions to complex policy challenges, and we as members of the public are often too inclined to uh, accept and be seduced by those, uh, those overly simplistic suggestions. So what I want to do this evening is not give you an answer to the question, not to suggest that there is a single answer to this question, but rather to encourage discussion of a range of options, some of which I think offer real promise. And that promise is not to make things perfect, that isn't possible, but rather it is to nudge our democracy gradually and incrementally in the direction of something that hopefully is a bit better. Before I start, I'd like to emphasize that insofar as I do have useful things to say this evening, that is not as a result of my work alone. Most concretely, and as you've already seen, I have worked with many uh, co-authors. Uh, if I can move the slides, but I can't. A little further technical issue here. Uh, there we go. I have worked with many um, co-authors uh, over the years, wonderful co-authors, here at UCL and also more widely. The uh, Constitution Unit and the wider UCL Department of Political Science is a, a joyful and inspirational place to work. And that is in significant part because of the fantastic people who make up these institutions, superbly led by Meg Russell, by Jennifer Hudson, and by Ben Lauderdale, our head of department. I work, of course, with many other people as well uh, in academia, not least Anand Menon, whom we will be hearing from later, whose leadership of UK in a Changing Europe has done so much to demonstrate the practical value of social science research. 
I work with many funders uh, who have made much of my work possible. Um, and I talk a lot with um, people in the policy world as well, with politicians, civil servants, uh, campaigners, uh, uh, activists, uh, for a range of different issues. Um, I learn a great deal from all of my conversations with them. I hope sometimes they learn something from me and maybe even change what they do as a result occasionally. So it's great to see so many of these people here this evening. And I want specially to mention the Minister for the Constitution, uh, uh, Alex Burghardt, who I know has a very busy schedule but has been able to join us this evening. We're also joined by some people who've been part of my journey from before I came to UCL, including college, uh, uh, colleagues from New College, Oxford, where I wrote my first book uh, as a postdoc, my DPhil supervisor, Stephen Whitefield, and my other supervisor, Ian McLean, was due to be coming, but last time I heard was stuck on a bus. Ian, have you made it? Not quite yet. Hopefully, Ian will make it uh, later. Um, my MPhil supervisor and long-term mentor, Nigel Bowles, I can't see him now, but he is uh, here as well, uh, as I think also, though I haven't quite seen him yet, is my undergraduate politics tutor at Merton College, David Leopold. David, are you here? David, fantastic, right in the middle, uh, too easy to miss. Um, <clears throat> some of my students, past and present, from... Uh, UCL from Reading and from Oxford are here. I have again learnt a great deal from all of my students and some have become very wonderful friends. And indeed some of my student friends from Oxford days, from the Central European University and uh, friends from years since are here as well. And all of you mean a great deal to me. As some of you know, uh, I grew up about as far from UCL as it's possible to get on this island without falling off in Wick, uh, up there. Here are some pictures of the town that I took uh, at some point in the late 1980s. Um, this was our house. So it is particularly thrilling and amazing that two of my school teachers have been able to make the journey all the way down here to join us this evening. Alma Johnston taught me speech making and debating along with Ishbal McBoyle, who I know will be watching the video of this lecture. They drove us the length and breadth of Scotland in order to take part in competitions. So uh, indeed we have a picture of us after one of these competitions in 1993. So what Alma taught me is feeding very directly into precisely what I'm doing this evening. And Leslie, Johnson, uh, Leslie Gunn taught me English, perhaps responsible for that English grammar, sticklerism, uh, but also taught me uh, to um, always seek to write with clarity and truth and always to try to see deeper. We're also joined by one of my school friends, John Banks. Can I see John? John's right there in the middle as well. John and I first met outside the Wick High School physics hut, for yes, there was such a thing, in, I think, uh, September 1989, and became very great friends. My, uh, the first uh, politician I ever met was my local MP, Robert McLennan. That occasion was also captured for posterity in, <laughs> in the local newspaper. Bob became a wonderful mentor. He, uh, I worked in his office for a month uh, in London before going to university, and we continued to have conversations often about the state of politics in the years subsequently. Bob sadly died in 2020, but it is a real joy that Helen McLennan uh, who looked after me during that month when I was staying in their home in London, who made the most extraordinary chocolate brownies, and who is in her own right a person of very great political insight, joins us this evening. Um, what's coming next? Aha. The big question. Uh, so... Um, uh, oh, before we get to the big question, I, my, my family. So, <laughs> I, I was just thinking there was, something, there was something coming. So, members of my family have made it too. The Sussex Rennicks, who are my third, fourth, and fifth cousins, 
are out in force, and my parents also have made it down from Scotland. They will deny any responsibility for my interest in politics, but they provided stability and a focus on pursuing the, com the common good that remains an example to me. To all of the people I have just mentioned, I say thank you. An inaugural lecture is kind of set up as a celebration of one person, but becoming a professor is never an achievement of one person. So it's wonderful to be able to share this occasion with all of you and to say that all of you are up here on this stage too. Uh, creating a professor, creating a person is a collective endeavor. And so, of course, is creating a well-functioning democracy. <laughs> now we get to the question. So how can we fix our democracy? How can we fix our democracy? We're all in this. We all have a part to play. And I'll be returning to that theme at the end of the lecture. So how should we approach this question? Well, it's easier to fix a problem if you know what the problem is. So we should start by asking what's wrong, if anything, with our democracy now. And then the question of how to fix a problem always has two elements. What are the potential solutions and how can we feasibly get there? Academics don't always worry too much about the last of those questions. Sometimes we focus on ideals and that's great. Uh, but at the Constitution Unit, we tend to look at solutions that might be feasible in the shorter medium term. And so that's what I'll be doing here. And in doing so, I'll be drawing on several strands of my research over the last couple of decades. So my early work focused on the strengths and weaknesses of different electoral systems and on why electoral reform does or more often does not happen. At the Constitution Unit, I've been working with colleagues, as Meg said, on the, the role and conduct of referendums and at the question of how we might be able to improve the quality of information and discourse in election and referendum campaigns. Recently, we've been doing a lot of work exploring what deliberative processes such as citizens' assemblies might be able to do to uh, reinvigorate our democratic processes. And at the moment, and partly overlapping with that, we're looking at public attitudes to democracy in the UK. Some of you will be aware that my very earliest work looked at uh, the choice of democratic institutions during transition from communism in Hungary, Czechoslovakia, and Poland. I won't be drawing on that work directly here, but it laid foundations for everything that I've done subsequently. And it has also given me particular perspective both on democratic hope and on the dangers of democratic backsliding. So, starting with the first question, what can we say about problems facing our democracy now? And I should say I'm going to be focusing on democracy in the UK, though of course many other democracies face similar problems. Well, one very clear point is that the public in the UK are unhappy with the state of their democracy. In a survey that we conducted in the summer of last year, we asked which of these statements best describes your opinion on the present state of governing the UK. And you can see the great majority of people thought the system could be improved quite a lot or that it needed a great deal of improvement. And I should say this is coming from research jointly with Meg and James Cleaver, who's right up at the back, and with uh, Ben Lauderdale, who did all the number crunching on the graphs that I'm going to show you, you to, so particular thanks to Ben. In the Citizens' Assembly on Democracy in the UK, which we ran in 2021, we asked the members to come up with a word that summed up their feelings about how democracy is working in the UK today. And you can see frustrated, concerned, dissatisfied, disappointed, disgusted, hopeful is in there too, um, but overwhelmingly negative. Going back to the survey, trust in politicians is very low. Trust is in orange on the left, distrust is in pink on the right. Um, the majority of people, the 52% in pink there, said that politicians tend to follow lower ethical standards than ordinary citizens. We asked about a range of different reforms to the system that might improve it. The one that was most popular that came top was that politicians should speak more honestly. People in the UK are fed up with the state of our political discourse, which they see as deeply dishonest, and that is a theme that I shall return to. And these are patterns that many other researchers have found as well. Now, public perceptions of democracy matter. They matter in themselves, 
in a democracy, we should care about what people think. That should be an important driver. And they also matter because they influence how well democracy works. If people feel disillusioned, they're less likely to take part, so their voices won't be heard. Or they may take part, but they may be less attentive, they may take a more cynical view, in which case they may be more susceptible to populist appeals, which ultimately may not serve their interests and may harm the interests of particularly vulnerable minorities. And a less attentive, more cynical public incentivizes politicians of all stripes to adopt strategies of disinformation and polarization. So these perceptions matter. At the same time, they're not all important. We might sometimes think that the public have an incomplete or misguided view of what makes democracy work. So we should also care about what we as analysts think about the democratic system. So in the interest of time, and at the risk of trampling over centuries of deep political thought, let me simply assert that a well-functioning democracy is one in which political authority derives from the wishes of the public, power is exercised in the interests of the public, and each person matters equally, such that the distribution of well-being is crucial and the vital interests of every one of us require protection. We might sum that up by saying democracy is rule by and for all the people. So, how are we doing on that score? Well, rule by the people is partly a matter of participation. And participation in our democratic processes is both low and unequal. Um, many people don't take part at all. Uh, and some groups, particularly the young and the disadvantaged, take part less than others. Or people may take part, but might not engage terribly much with uh, the issues that are at stake. Uh, and many people don't, may, they vote, but they uh, don't take part in many of the other kinds of democratic activities that may be important. Low participation is less of a problem if uh, representation is working well. And in some ways, so-called descriptive representation, particularly of women and minorities, has been improving over re recent decades. But that situation, that picture is still far from perfect. And on other bases, representation has been getting worse, notably representation of people without a university degree. And if we think of another form of representation, whether people feel represented by their representatives, then that, as we've already seen, is very low. So, uh, moving on then to rule for the people. Well, that is partly simply a matter of does the system deliver for all the people? And here we find multiple failings. Specific policy initiatives are sometimes grossly misjudged. If you read Ian Dunt's new book, which I strongly recommend, How Westminster Works, and why it doesn't, you'll be familiar with the example of the partial privatization of the probation service under Chris Grayling. Sometimes the system fails to deliver policies that would clearly be beneficial. Another recent book, Paul Johnson's Follow the Money, How Much Does Britain Cost, launched recently here in the UCL Policy Lab, shows that there are policies that would clearly increase growth reduce inequality and speed up climate action that are not adopted, not because there's any doubt as to whether they would work, but simply because the politics is too difficult. Think, think for example, of the funding of social care or the rebasing of council tax or well-designed carbon taxes. Sometimes the, we face enormous future challenges and fail to do enough about them. Think again of climate change or the governance of AI or pandemic preparation. And sometimes the system fails to deliver for everyone equally. Discrimination against women and against minorities of many kinds remains great. Looking under the bonnet, achieving delivery is partly a matter of structures of power. Achieving rule for all is partly a matter of structures of power. And here we need uh, a balance. On the one hand, 
we need governments that can act in pursuit of the public interest. To use some recent political rhetoric, governments be, need to be able to get things done. And that can be very hard, particularly when multiple vested interests are pushing against change. But on the other hand, and for three reasons, governments need to be subject to checks and balances. First, excessive concentration of power creates dangers of corruption. Second, pure majority rule is inadequate to protect the full diversity of interests. And third, scrutiny by a wide range of different people, if done well, can improve the quality of decision-making and help avoid unintended consequences. So a balance between these things is needed, but most experts would say that at the moment in the UK that balance is too skewed in the direction of government power rather than checks and balances, and that that has become worse over recent years, particularly under Johnson and Truss. So rule for all the people is partly a matter of structures, and crucially it's also about discourses of politics. The political system is only likely to deliver in the long term for all the people if decision-making is informed and considered. But <clears throat> the discourse of our politics is grim. Lies such as this and this are far too common. Beyond outright lying, those in power, as well as campaigners and commentators, often spin heavily or fail to answer the question, leaving the public feeling disrespected and used. And I think sometimes those within the Westminster Village make a distinction between lying, which is not allowed, and spinning, which is fair game. But the public do not make that distinction. They see it all as dishonest, and they're fed up with all of it. Um, and problems around misinformation are only likely to get worse as the AI revolution really kicks in. Now, to be clear, politicians often spin or fudge in pursuit of noble causes. Indeed, many politicians feel trapped. They have to dissemble or spin in order to win the power that they need in order to do good and important things that they believe in. So the problem here is about the system. It's not about individual politicians. Furthermore, another problem of our discourse at present is that those who seek elected office are often subject to wholly unreasonable levels of public abuse. And that, combined with the need to spin, the unsociable working hours and so on, dissuades many fantastic people from becoming politicians, which is another weakness in our democracy at present. And also under the discourse heading... I should mention polarization, which is too high on many issues. Too often we fail to listen, fail to respect other views, and fail to seek a shared way forward. So, <clears throat> there are many problems, and I haven't even covered all of them. What then can we do? Um, well, I'm trying to cover quite a lot of territory in this lecture, as you might have noticed, but I can't cover any, everything. So, clearly, not all the causes of democratic ills lie within the democratic system itself. Social inequality feeds democratic inequality and polarization. So tackling social inequality is an important part of strengthening our democracy. People will, will, more, will be more likely to become disillusioned with politics if politics fails to deliver. So delivering on economic growth, on better public services, on all the other things that people care about that matters too. Though remember, as I've already suggested, a healthier democracy is more likely to deliver effectively on policy. So it does go both ways. Focusing in on the democratic system itself, there are many aspects of the system where there are important debates about the role and the functioning of the courts, parliament, civil service, watchdogs, and so on. Also, there are debates about decentralization. Today, we have in the news the question of the funding of politics. There are experts in the room on all of these issues. I will leave them at least for this evening to all of you. Uh, and I'll focus instead on two, two areas where I have done research. Firstly, electoral reform, and second, improving information and discourse in politics. And in doing so, I'll also be addressing the third question that I had at the beginning about feasibility. 
And I'd like to make two general points about that before I go into the specifics of the particular potential solutions. The first comes from my first book, The Politics of Electoral Reform, and it is that all paths to reform run through politicians, and furthermore, politicians' personal interests are more at stake when it comes to democratic reform than in any other policy area. That is not to say that public opinion doesn't matter on these things. Actually, that it does was an important element of the argument in the book. Uh, it does not mean that, that politicians don't care about our democratic system. They do. Most of them are good people. But nevertheless, um, the, the more politicians see that a particular reform would be harmful to their interests, the less likely is that reform to take place. The second insight comes, at least to me, from a book by Wolfgang Streeck and Kathleen Thielen called Beyond Continuity, and it is quite simply that institutions change gradually. They identify various different mechanisms of change. They call them layering and conversion and various other things, but the overall picture is that institutional change is incremental. So these are two important points that I will be returning to. Okay, then, let's move to electoral reform as the first possible solution here. So, several prominent commentators see the replacement of first-past-the-post with a proportional system as the core reform that our democracy needs. And public opinion seems also to have moved in favour of electoral reform. We asked a question about this in our survey, and at least among the people with a view, a clear majority favoured electoral reform. And that fits with evidence from British Social Attitudes Survey and elsewhere. So the argument goes, against first-past-the-post, goes that it generates unfair disproportionalities in representation. It incentivizes parties to focus on swing voters in marginal seats to the detriment of everywhere and everyone else. It disincentivizes voters in safe seats to turn out. It leads to concentration of power. It fuels polarization by maintaining two-party competition. And it encourages a culture of winner-takes-all politics rather than a culture of cooperation and compromise. That's a pretty severe charge sheet. It covers most of the problems with democracy that I talked about earlier. And there is much in every one of these points. However, we shouldn't oversimplify. First, there's a trade-off, often, between representation and accountability. PR allows fairer and broader representation. Accountability tends to produce single-party majorities, which makes it easier for voters, as the saying goes, to throw the rascals out. And both of these things, representation and accountability, matter to voters in the UK. We asked about people's views on what it's important for a voting system to do. The thing that came top was give each party its fair share of seats in Parliament based on how many votes it got. We also asked about what are the most important features of a democracy. And here are the top. Some of you might be able to read this. If those in power do a poor job, they can be voted out. Representation and accountability. So you could introduce a proportional system and it would clearly bring benefits in some ways in terms of representation. But if voters perceive that their ability to uh, determine who is in government was they perceived that as having been impaired, then that could, could cause difficulties. What of the argument that uh, first-past-the-post leads to concentration power, polarization, a winner-takes-all politics? Well, it often feels like that, and has done in recent years. But if there are only two political parties, each of those parties needs in itself to be a broad coalition, as we see in practice. Many points of view are included. And one of the most famous theories of political science is median voter theorem, which says that if you've got two parties, then those parties will tend to locate themselves in the center ground because that's where they maximize their vote. Think, for example, of Blair or Cameron or Starmer or even Johnson in his economic centrism. Now, there are flaws with median voter theorem. It is too simple. Sometimes parties are captured by zealots, and sometimes it is the optimal strategy for a party to differentiate itself from others. 
But the case that first passed the post is the source of polarization and winner-takes-all politics is not a slam dunk. Now, to be clear, my point here is not to argue against proportional representation. It might well be that that would turn out to be the best system. Rather, my point is that it's no panacea. It might make things a bit better, but that is all. What about the practicability of electoral reform? Well, we've seen the public support for PR has risen. There's certainly very strong support in the grassroots of the labor movement. But the labor and conservative leaderships are in opposition. Reformers would like a hung parliament. But the, uh, the um, bargaining power of the Lib Dems in a hung parliament is going to be pretty weak. They might get a referendum but as we saw with the 2011 AV referendum, such a vote might well be lost. All in all, then, it seems to me that concentrating your reforming efforts on electoral reform is not especially wise. So, turning to the second option, uh, uh, improving information and discourse, and particularly this question, how can we improve the quality of information and discourse in and about politics. And let me first emphasize again just how important this is. As we've seen, poor quality discourse is one of the core problems of our democracy today. It hinders effective governance. It turns people off from participating. It distance people, distances people from their representation, uh, representatives, and people are just fed up with it. So tackling this is really fundamental. Well, a simple solution, if misinformation is the problem, then a simple solution might be, well, ban it. Ban and punish instances of misinformation. And a few years ago, with Michaela Pelezzi, who I saw earlier, uh, I did some research uh, on the democratic polity that has gone furthest in this direction, namely South Australia, and we found that it did actually work pretty well there. The system was perceived as legitimate, and it did catch and stop some instances of misinformation from campaigners. But we also concluded that uh, it didn't do much, didn't achieve much in South Australia, and any attempt to introduce it in the UK would be very dangerous. The first problem is that to be compatible with free speech, it would be uh, possible to ban only blatantly false statements. But most dishonest, most dishonest statements are not blatantly false. They're only misleading. And if you uh, introduce a system that promises to deal with misinformation but then lets a great deal through, then you risk making things worse rather than better. The second problem uh, is that populists have learned the power of the blatant lie. Complaints about the lie only focus attention on the populist's chosen narrative. And if any establishment body tries to move against them, they scream blue murder. So it may be there's some scope to do something on the margins with banning and punishing misinformation, but it's not going to get us very far. We need to, uh, uh, so, so we need th uh, other approaches. And I'd like to suggest uh, three particular approaches coming from my research. First, we need to ensure access to high-quality information. Now, very, various bodies are actually already working on this. The social media companies have upped their game. The Electoral Commission has greatly increased the amount of information it provides at election times. A range of volunteer groups are doing great work. And some media outlets have brought fact-checking more into the center of their coverage. But all, but all of this needs to happen much more and the need for concerted action will grow as AI uh, develops further. Many of us can take steps to help here, and I'll return to that at the end, but government support is also needed. And let me make just two suggestions for what might happen here. So first, as we've seen in recent weeks and months, um, the, uh, we need better protection of the independence in both financial and governance terms of uh, public service broadcasters such as the BBC and of regulators such as Ofcom and the Electoral Commission so that they can play their roles fearlessly. 
Second, Michaela and I, in our report, pr pr proposed the creation of something we called a democracy information hub, a kind of portal where you can find information on elections and candidates and parties and policies and issues and political processes. Um, so um, high quality, reliable and easily accessible information. You can go there, you can start exploring around, find all sorts of things you didn't even know you wanted to know. Uh, so a place where people can find good quality information. So that's first. Second, we need much better education about politics, media literacy and evidence-based reasoning. Politicians, campaigners, journalists speak dishonestly because it works for them because we are more likely to vote for them or back their cause or click on their story if they say what we want to hear or they make big and brash claims. We can't tackle dishonesty without reducing the incentive to engage in it, without reducing the demand for it. And that requires us, all of us, to be more aware of what we're consuming, to be able to evaluate it, and to know how to base that evaluation on evidence and reasoning rather than prejudice and presupposition. We all have responsibilities here, but education about these matters is crucial too in schools and also beyond. And then third, we need to foster a more deliberative democracy. Now that is a term that some of you are very familiar with and others rather less so. What I mean by it is the idea or ideal that decisions should be based in deliberations that all can participate or at least be represented in equally, that are informed, open-minded, and thoughtful, and that seek outcomes that as many as possible can acknowledge as fair and reasonable. This should be happening in Parliament among our elected representatives, but Parliament, particularly the House of Commons, alas, often falls short. And part of the reason for that sadly, is inherent in any body uh, containing people who are elected and who want re-election. If you're elected on a manifesto, then you're somewhat beholden to that manifesto. You can't simply be entirely open-minded and allow yourself to be swayed by whatever you hear. If you want re-election, you can't simply uh, uh, go through the deliberative process, work out what you think is best and vote for that without any regard to what the, uh, your electorate think. So election and the desire for re-election are antithetical to deliberation in the full sense. Now that's led a few people to suggest that we should um, do away with elected institutions and replace them with representative bodies of citizens chosen by lot so that they are not susceptible to that accountability trap. Selection by lot, much as for jury service, uh, can indeed ensure a genuinely representative, really genuinely representative, uh, sample of the population take part. And with support from professional facilitators, um, they can engage in fantastically high quality deliberation. We know that because it's now been done uh, many times in many countries. I've already mentioned citizens' assemblies. So these are fairly small bodies of people who are very carefully selected by lot to ensure that they're representative of the population. They're given a particular policy question to address. They typically meet over a number of weekends. They discuss among themselves. They hear from experts. They deliberate, weigh up the options, and come to a recommendation at the end. Now, we in the Constitution Unit have run two such citizens' assemblies. First, the Citizens' Assembly on Brexit in 2017. There are some of the members. There is Sarah Allen, who uh, led the process. There is Anand, being an expert witness, witness. And then second, in 2021, as I've said, we held the Citizens' Assembly on Democracy, which took place online because of COVID. We know from these and many other examples that such assemblies are highly effective in themselves. But the idea that bodies such as citizens' assemblies could replace parliaments has, it seems to me, two problems. First, it hits hard against the practicability constraint. Politicians are not going to vote to abolish their own jobs. Second, 
it's not clear that it's a good idea anyway. Um, citizens' assemblies are still relatively new. We need to do experimentation, gradually building up our understanding of what they're good for, what maybe they're not so good for. But most fundamentally, uh, accountability is essential to democratic representation. Without it, the system becomes too susceptible to corruption by the powerful. So, elections are antithetical to deliberation, but essential to ensuring that the public at large can keep the system in check. Selection by lot removes accountability, but creates space for deliberation. The solution is to retain our elected institutions, but combine them with deliberative institutions chosen by lot. To seek the best of both worlds, to do what Streich and Thelen in that book that I mentioned refer to as the layering of new institutions upon old. So how might we do that? Well, um, here we want to get creative. There are a whole range of different ways in which citizens' assemblies and other similar processes could be used in our democratic process. Uh, governments could use them to frame the terms of national debate on important issues. This happened in Ireland on same-sex marriage and on abortion and worked very well. We could do it in the UK on social care, maybe, or the future of the BBC, or assisted dying. There are many potential topics. Citizens' assemblies or smaller citizens' uh, juries could be used as part of the regular legislative process. In that book by Ian Dunt that I plugged earlier, he recommends this. And the Scottish Parliament have been doing much to build capacity for doing this kind of thing. Um, uh, assemblies are increasingly being used at local level to examine tricky issues, often with great success. And then we can get more creative and do things that haven't been done so much before. So I think citizens' assemblies could be used during election and referendum campaigns. So it's really important to have expert fact-checking going on. But alongside that in order to build legitimacy and a sense of popular participation. We could have citizens' assemblies providing a citizen's view on the strengths and weaknesses of the arguments, saying what members want more information on, saying where they think they're being fed untruths or half-truths. This has happened in a very small way in Oregon. I think we could be really innovative and do exciting things here in order to improve our election campaigns. Another idea comes from the recent Brown Commission on the Future of the UK, that citizens' assemblies or citizens' juries uh, could be used to strengthen the protection of ethical standards in public life. This is an idea that I find rather interesting. I think it deserves further exploration. And there are many other things that we could imagine. Perhaps, for example, we could use these kinds of processes to help ensure both independence and accountability for bodies such as the BBC. In short, there are many ways in which we could bring public deliberative processes into our, uh, our democratic system in ways that would not weaken the existing institutions, but could deepen participation, representation, and the quality of discourse, and could thereby help politicians do their jobs better. But are these various solutions that I've been offering here, so three solutions that I've been talking about, are they practicable? Well, I think the answer actually is yes. First of all, some of the changes that I've been suggesting don't actually need to involve politicians. So the media, uh, the Electoral Commission, other bodies uh, have, uh, have their bit to do. Second, these changes can be introduced incrementally, gradually building confidence as well as understanding in what works well. Third, now this one's a bit more complicated, so achieving the full potential of such reforms does require buy-in from politicians, which is sometimes the tricky bit. It does require government support. For example, citizens' assemblies are more likely to be effective if policymakers pick them up and take their recommendations seriously. But um, none of these reforms that I've suggested in any way endanger the interests of politicians in the ways that electoral reform does. Populist politicians might not like these kinds of reforms because populists thrive on false simplicity. But why would politicians who believe in democracy by and for all the people object to these reforms? Such politicians will gain from these reforms in terms of their own electoral prospects, but also in terms of their ability to deliver the good outcomes that they believe in 
and in terms of their job satisfaction. Of course there are legitimate fears and doubts, none of this would be easy, but it seems to me that there are no fundamental barriers here. These things can be done. So, time to conclude, slightly more than time to conclude actually. How can we fix our democracy? How can we fix our democracy? Well, as I've said, there are no simple solutions, but many of you here in the room are involved in some way or other in the policy-making process. I hope I've given you some ideas to work on a bit. So improve access to high-quality information, improve education on politics, media literacy, and evidence-based reasoning, and get creative in using citizens' assemblies and other deliberative processes. Some of us here in the room are researchers, so we can be working with policymakers to uh, develop uh, these ideas further and test them thoroughly. Some of us are educators. In our own practice, we can be thinking, are we always encouraging our students to uh, question their own assumptions, to remain open to other viewpoints, and to base conclusions on evidence? And finally, and most importantly, all of us here are citizens. As we've seen, many of the problems arise because we're just not very engaged. And it's frustrating to get engaged in politics because so much of politics is so off-putting. But we're in a vicious circle. The more we disengaged, the more the bad people win, the more the good people need to play games in order to win us back, the more we find the process off-putting, and the more we disengage still further. If we engage just a little more, if, above all, we avoid the cynicism trap, if, that is, we avoid the thought that they're all the same, and rather we differentiate and we reward those politicians who are a bit more honest and reasonable, then we can start to shift the incentive structure and turn the vicious circle into a virtuous circle. It's not easy. It will always be frustrating. But we can make a difference. We should have democratic hope. And now is the best time to begin. Thank you very much. Alan Bravo. Can, can you hear at the back? If ever I'd had a colleague who was one of those people who, as they say, wear profound learning lightly, that colleague was Alan. And I mean three things by that. Firstly, I mean the obvious that we've just heard, that we heard in what Meg said, the sheer breadth and depth of his learning. Uh, other academics here, like me, I imagine, felt that sinking feeling where he flicked through eight pages of slides of all the books he's written and felt like failures. But Alan knows his stuff, first and foremost. But secondly, he brings with that learning a clarity of thought and expression that makes it a pleasure both to listen to him, as we've heard tonight, and to read him. Leslie Gunn, I don't know who you are. I look forward to having a drink with you later. But you did your job brilliantly. You have created someone who writes like an angel. Congratulations. And thirdly and more broadly, the ability to bring that all together and just to communicate. I was privileged enough to be able to watch Alan when he chaired the uh, Citizens' Assembly on Brexit way back in 2017. Uh -huh. It's all a blur now. And he brought that knowledge to that room and used it to inform a room full of perfectly ordinary citizens in an engaging, engaged, and just wonderful manner. He is a lesson to all of us as to how scholars should act, what scholars can do if they put their minds to it. Now, it's traditional, I think, to ask a couple of questions in this role of appreciator. Uh, so you got me thinking in your lecture, so I had to rewrite all my notes, which was slightly annoying. Uh, but Three thoughts struck me, and you don't have to answer these directly now, I mean, this is your day, so if you want to ignore them, that's absolutely fine. I mean, the first is you talked about the challenges of climate change, of, of pandemic preparation, of dealing with AI, we could, I suppose, add the problem of social care to that. Mm. And your lecture was very much about the here and now, but the one thing that unites those issues, I think, is their long term. 
how do we create not just a politics that works for now, but a politics that is increasingly called upon to put forward stable policy solutions for challenges that are going to last way beyond one or two parliaments and which will require our politicians to work together? That strikes me as one of the big issues for our time. Yeah. Secondly, and talking about citizens' assemblies, I suppose my question is, are we too polarised for them to work here? We live in a very polarised society. I don't imagine many people here have hot-footed it over from the Emanuel Centre and the National Conservatives and Conference, but it's going on. Uh, are we too divided as a society? Are there ways around it? Are there things we need to be careful of in a society like this? And thirdly, I suppose, and this is something you ended with, it would be great if you could say more about what the role of the academics should be in this world. Yep, we can help inform policy with our research. Yep, we can teach our students. Is there more we could and should be doing? Uh, how engaged should academics be? What are the pitfalls involved in that? The one bit of advice I know you're not going to take is Meg's advice to slow down. <laughs> but I just wanted to say that it's been an absolute delight working for you over these last few years. And I'm very, very much looking forward to working with you very much more in the future. Congratulations, Alan. Why don't you pick one or two or all three? Pick your favorite and, and have a go. <laughs> They're all great questions. How should we... And thank you, Anand. It's, I mean, it's been so wonderful working with Anand as well for uh, these years. Anand uh, turns up at our citizens' assemblies uh, on all sorts of different subjects and is very happy to be told, OK, you're going to have to be the expert on this, Anand. And off he goes, and he delivers the most fantastic uh, talk that regular members of the public can really engage with, and that is a skill that very few academics have. So at the end there, you talked about the role of the academic. Uh, few of us are capable of performing the role that Anand has performed so well uh, over many years now. <laughs> so uh, thank you. Um, you asked, how do we create... Uh, uh, politics for stable policy solutions. So, of course, many people would say, well, well, the solution is to have a proportional electoral system because then you don't have such alternation in power between elections. Um, that may be a partial solution, but, of course, it is also the case that sometimes you could just get alternation in power between different coalitions and you don't really get think, listening across the divide in the way that people hope that a, a proportional system would do. So I think that might be part of the solution, but we have to go deeper as well. And we have to encourage a discourse of politics that is more focused on the long term. So I guess the, you know, the big theme of the talk there is that just doing these kind of surface level institutional changes um, might get us a bit of a way, but it's not going to get us all the way unless we really tackle the underlying structures of discourse in our system. And that's... I think we can nudge in that direction with the things that I've been talking about, um, but it's hard. Are we too polarised for citizens' assemblies? No. Uh, we did one on Brexit in 2017. So within themselves, citizens' assemblies can overcome polarisation. It's not a problem if you have fantastic facilitators like Sarah, uh, who know how to bring people together and get people listening to each other and engaging with each other. The hard part with citizens' assemblies is always, okay, they do their great thing, then they, the recommendations emerge into the wider political world, and if, if that world is very polarised, then people won't listen. Uh, so I think initially, as you're building this up, you need to choose topics where there isn't polarisation, uh, because then the broader political system will be more receptive. So issues where politicians know they have to do something, but they're not very clear on what they should do. They know there are political costs attached to any po possible policy solution. You know, that's the kind of issue where citizens' assemblies might very well be uh, tested out early on. What's the role of the academic? How engaged we should, we sh we sh should we be? It seems to me the fundamental uh, um, condition for an academic life that we cannot compromise on is we must always remain in a state of doubt. We must always think that we might be wrong. 
And that's difficult to combine with campaigning for things. Because if you're a campaigner, you need to say, okay, this is what we believe in, off we go. Um, so there is a tension there. Uh, but I think, you know, we can engage a great deal. And it's fantastic, as I said, to see many uh, politicians and civil servants and campaigners uh, and practitioners here in the room. Uh, so we do engage with people, but we also have to be careful of the, the divide. And we can't turn into campaigners. Thank you, Alan. I think we have five minutes, so I'm going to take three questions, um, and this feels like a little bit of a lottery. Who would like to ask uh, Professor Alan Rennick a question? Um, this young lady here was first off. Hello. I think hear me. <laughs> Hello. Hi. Uh, Helen Thomas. Um, probably shouldn't have stood up, because Alan, I'm one of your former students, and I've just been, to, from what I know, some of my other tutors are in the room as well, so this is uh, extremely frightening, but... Uh, I, I really enjoyed that, found it very interesting, have a similar optimism to yourself, but I want to pick up on polarisation, because I think that when we, uh, we move, if we, if we were to move forward in time and we get to the Alan Rennick uh, retirement lecture, not many, many, many years from now, uh, we'll look back on this period and we will say, goodness, we're in the midst of a technological revolution, which probably means that we'll, we'll be doing it in the metaverse. Um, but we had that. We had a banking crisis. We had a schism with our closest trading partner. We had a once-in-a-century pandemic, etc., etc. Mm -hmm. What I find frustrating in this question of polarisation is, wouldn't you expect people to be angry? These are massive issues individually, cumulatively even more so. And when things are difficult it is hard to have that well-informed debate that you're talking about. So, my question to you is, to answer your how can we fix our democracy and your excellent three solutions, isn't there a first step which is accept the polarisation because otherwise you fall into the cynicism trap and think nothing can be done? Thank you. Mm. Okay. Um, there was a young lady also in the back in the red shirt. Hi, Alan. Um, I think you know what I'm going to ask. <laughs> ten, ten pounds if you can guess it before I do. Um, it's, this is fantastic and amazing to see such a packed room talking about democracy. It's really a testament to you. Um, so my counter-argument to your point about PR is just about context, really. So you talked about polarisation, you talked about the moment that we're in, and you also touched in looking at the survey results on the fact that people talked about this is all, you know, politicians are all the same, We've had the rise of Tina. There is no alternative. And I would argue that a lot of that comes from a very truncated electoral system, binary, binary politics, win-takes-all. Win and whilst accepting and knowing in my day-to-day -day work all of the obstacles of getting that achieved, I think if you'd asked people five years ago, will the Labour Party membership ever vote for PR, they would have said no. So my point about this is also about the fact that in 2015 we had, you know, 12% of people vote for UKIP and then a few years, and they got, you know, one seat and a few years later we had the Brexit referendum. I think you can't look at changes to the electoral system without looking at the context that we're sitting in. And my argument for PR would be that it was a huge shake-up which would nudge politicians out of their complacency right now and would be something about, you know, do something for pol um, polarisation and maybe people's engagement with politics. Um, would you agree with that to some degree? Maybe from one from this side of the room, question over here. Gentleman right here in the middle. Um, was there ever a time in your eyes that democracy was less broken? And is there something to glean from then? Wow. Um, these are great questions. Uh, um, so, uh, to s start with Sam's question, at this, I, I do know half the people in this audience. So <laughs> more than half of it. So, uh, to start with Sa Sam's uh, very insightful question, was there ever a better time? So, if you look at evidence on public opinion over time, then people have always been very disillusioned with, with how politics operates, and there's always been a sense that politics is a bit rubbish. Um, but I think the intensity of that probably has increased in recent years, and it has also become more salient to how politics actually works. If you go back to the 1950s and you look at mass observation uh, evidence from these, these people who asked, asked 
participants to keep diaries of what they were thinking. And, and if, you look at, if you look at that from the 1950s, people were scathing about politicians back there as, then as well. Um, but it somehow didn't kind of affect how politics worked. Uh, politics was its own world in which um, the elite got on with what the elite did and the masses knew their place. Uh, that is no longer the case. In, 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 for, for, for good, uh, that, that has, has changed. But it means that um, these problems with our democracy and perceptions uh, of problems in our democracy now matter more. So I think we should care more than we have in the past, even though it has always been the case that democracy, as Meg has argued in some of her work, is just always going to be pretty dissatisfying in many ways. Um, Francis challenges me on uh, PR. And yes, I mean, yeah, so I'm not, I, as, I, as I try to say, I'm not arguing against PR. I just think there's a more balanced debate about PR than is often suggested. You suggested that we need it in order to shake things up, in order to give the politicians a bit of a push out of their complacency. But that, that's not an argument that's going to persuade the politicians. Uh, so, <laughs> engaging with this difficulty around how we, how we might get there, if that is a desirable outcome, I think is really important. But, I mean, Francis, we should say, is one of the best people in the country for thinking about uh, how to campaign for democratic reform. So, do talk with Francis over the drinks afterwards, if you want. And Helen, so, um, great question from Helen as well. I taught Helen in 2001, something like that. Shows just how old I am. Um, so, polarization, should we just accept polarization? Well, um, we, it, so it's important that people are angry, and anger is an entirely legitimate emotion in politics. So we shouldn't, you know, I'm not suggesting that somehow we turn all of politics into an academic seminar in which everyone is, just, just doesn't have emotions anymore. Uh, we need emotions in politics, and anger is often a very important driver uh, for, for, for what happens in politics. But if we actually want to kind of then make progress on things, then we need to find ways in which decision-making processes can deal with that anger and can deal with that polarization and can come up with something good out to the other end. Um, and that is what I hope the sorts of things that I've been talking about might help with. Alan started off this lecture by giving a, a very warm recognition of thanks to all of those, uh, many in this room, who have joined him on this journey to professorship. Um, and I think it's, uh, it's wonderful to be here with you, and I know everybody's here to, to celebrate your, your journey, Alan. Uh, to close this lecture, I think what we want to do is just put that back now to Alan and recognize that a UCL professorship is, is an outstanding achievement. And it comes from support from people in the room, but it comes down to your bloody hard work. Um, and Meg has got it right. He's not going to slow down. And, and you're right as well. Um, Alan is one of the hardest working people I know, but he combines that with his, his brilliant intellect, his utter collegiality, collegiality, and his commitment to doing good. And for us, it's a treat to be here tonight. And so we want to end by thanking Professor Alan Rennick. <laughs>